we ask you to open up our hearts and our minds this morning. Use, Lord, this portion of your word to search us out. Make us diligent seekers, Lord, of your love and of your word. Lord, show us that being in your arms is the only place to be, and trusting you even in tough times is the way to go. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left and her two sons. Now they took wives of the woman of Moab. The name of one was Orpha, the name of the other was Ruth. And they dwelt there about ten years. Both Malon and Chilion also died, so the women survived her two sons and her husband. You know, becoming a Christian does not erase our imperfections. In fact, you and I suffer from a disease, an epidemic. It's called, we make mistakes. Some of us make deliberate, willful, sinful mistakes, and sometimes we make just dumb, plain, innocent mistakes. Just an honest, dumb mistake. Oftentimes, we are pressured we make what I call panic choices, panic decisions. We're in a hurry. We're in a crisis. We've got to do something. So we make a quick decision without really consulting the Lord. Sometimes we race ahead of the Lord and we choose second best. We're pressured into a decision. We're out of money. We need money real fast. So we grab the first loan that comes along. And then later on we say, man, what? I blew it. I should have waited another week, a couple more days. I've met people who've come up to me and said, gosh, I'm 24 years old already and I'm not married. I'm an old maid. 24, man, and I don't have a husband. I know a lot of 34-year-olds that would love to trade off. In their panic, they raced ahead of God and now they're sorry. Elimelech was a guy who, in making a choice, raced a little bit ahead of the Lord, and he was sorry that he did. Ended up kind of in some confusion away from God. Verse 1 tells us what kind of days that we were talking about. They were times of trial. It says in verse 1, It came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. The days of judges, we remember reading the book, couple months back, the times of the judges were cruel. They were times of darkness. They were times of apostasy. The nation had turned away from God, was doing its own thing. We remember the cycle in the book of Judges, just to refresh our memory. The children of Israel began seeking the Lord. After a while, however, they started falling away from the Lord. They started seeking after other gods, doing the things of the people around them. As they did that, God brought them into judgment, sold them into the hand of their enemies, 
until they were in such a bad place that they looked back and they said, why did we ever leave the arms of God? They started crying out on the name of God. God delivered them and brought them back to that place of servitude to the Lord. And this happened over and over and over again. Look to the last verse of the book of Judges. Just flip a page over, back. The last verse of the book of Judges so that you know what kind of a time we're talking about. It says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone did his own thing, in other words. And we covered this pretty much at length when we were going through the book of Judges. The book of Judges and the time of Judges in which Ruth is written is a time of failure. It's depressing to read the book of Judges. On one hand. On the other hand, it's rather encouraging. Because I am amazed at what God will put up with. And how, when we make stupid mistakes, how that God is there to pick us up again. So on one hand, the book of Judges and the time of the Judges is depressing. On the other hand, it's quite encouraging because God is so patient, so loving. He puts up with so much. You know, I have seen people curse God. I've actually seen people shake their fists at God and curse God to his face. And I was so amazed. I put my fingers in my ears, you know, waiting to hear a lightning bolt from heaven. Just it never came. He puts up with so much flack. And he is so faithful to draw us back and to bring us to our senses. These are the times of the judges. Israel did what was right in her own eyes. The book of Ruth is a beautiful story that is set. It's like a gem that is set in the midst of this black, dark time of judges. It's a ray of hope. No absolutes. If you want to get nailed by society, live a life of absolutes. And speak of absolutes. You'll get nailed. Tell people there's a God. Tell people there's good and evil. There are definite black and white absolutes. And you will get nailed by this society. You'll have the most hostile reactions from people. Why? Because everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. They're making up their own rules, their own standards. They will say, you've got no right to tell me what to do. I decide my own standards for myself. No God or no Bible is going to tell me what to do. And they'll be hostile if you try to live a life of absolutes. I remember when I was studying radiology years ago, in my class, out of all of the students in my class, out of all of the religious people in my class, guess who was singled out as the oddball? me. Now, I am a rather an odd person, but I think I was singled out as an oddball basically because of those absolutes, because I was trying to shine a light of faith in the midst of a world that had no absolutes. You'll be singled out as an oddball every time. Everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. It was a period of blackness, darkness, and apostasy. Before we go on, though, I want you to remember that Israel was not always this way. The period of Judges represents probably the blackest time in their history. But there was a time when they were following God. There were 400 years when they were in Egypt under the tyranny of the Egyptian pharaohs. They cried out to God, oh, deliver us, bring us to a new land. God sent Moses. 
Moses took them through the wilderness. In fact, Deuteronomy says Moses was their king. Moses died. Joshua served as sort of a prime minister and a general and brought them into the land of promise. Now, they had their mess-ups and their slip-ups and their complaining, but by and large, they were following God, at least a lot more than they were in Judges. As soon as they entered the land, however, things changed. That's when the problems really began to arise. While they were out in the wilderness, while they were going through the trials and the tyranny of the Egyptians and in the wilderness, by and large, they clung to God. As soon as they got into the land of promise and blessing, they started turning from God. You know, times of prosperity are often more dangerous than times of adversity. Israel clinging to God. Who else are they going to cling to out in the middle of the desert? Who else are they going to call on but God? But they get into this land of ease and blessing and everything's there for them. The crops are growing. Ooh, it's nice. They're settling into that time of prosperity. They start turning their backs on God. Times of prosperity are often far worse than times of adversity. For in times of trial, we're apt to cling hard to the Lord. In times of blessing, we're apt to forget God. In fact, listen to this in Deuteronomy chapter 8. You can turn there if you'd like. What God says to the children of Israel in warning them of times of prosperity. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2, God says, You shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you, to test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you and he allowed you to hunger. He fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Your garments did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years, that you should know in your heart that as a man chastens his son, so the Lord your God chastens you. Therefore you will keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways to fear him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks, of water, fountains, springs that flow out of the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron, and out of the hills you can dig copper. And when you have eaten and are full, then you will bless the Lord your God for the good land that he has given you. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by keeping his commandments, his judgments, his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and you have built beautiful houses and dwell in them, when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold are multiplied, all that you have is multiplied. When your heart is lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage who led you through that great and terrible wilderness in which were fiery serpents, scorpions, and thirsty land. There was no water. Who brought you water out of the rock of Flint. Verse 17. Then you will say in your heart, my power and my might and my hand have gained me this wealth. And you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant, which he swore to your fathers, as it is this day. 
In the wilderness, they clung to God. In the land, the time of the judges, as they enter in, it was a time of going away from God. Now, this is a perfect example of how mankind will progress when completely unrestrained. When man has complete freedom, free from God, free from man, free from absolutes, no ruler, no authority, completely doing his own thing, this is how man progresses. This is existentialism gone wild. I decide my own destiny. This is what it leads to. You know, it's ironic. It really is. That the freer we become, the more in bondage we become. That is, the more unrestrained we get, the worse off we get. The more that you do as you please, the less you are pleased with what you do. Because you can become in bondage to your own desires and your own lusts, and you can get burnt out on it. And here's a prime example of Israel, now into that land, doing their own thing, whatever seems right in their own eyes, miserable, away from God, paying the penalty. Completely unrestrained. It was the blackest time of their history. Now, some of you may be here today who aren't Christians, and in your heart you're saying, I'm never going to become a Christian. I'm just here because I was dragged here today. I am my own master. I will do what I please, what I decide to do. No Bible will give me any absolutes. You are probably one of the most miserable people in this room. Because you're so free from any restraints, and yet you're in bondage. And it can seem like there's no way out. That was the time of the judges. Now going on in the book of Ruth, chapter 1, we come to a man and the mistakes that he made. It says also in verse 1, there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to journey or sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech. The name of the wife was Naomi. The name of his two sons were Malon and Chilion, Ephrathites of Benjamin Judah. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. Now, first of all, I want to introduce you to these people. First on the line, we have Elimelech. It's a Hebrew word for my God is the king. Elimelech. My God is in charge. My God is king. Then we get his wife, Naomi. Naomi's name means pleasant or beauty or favorable. Now, they had two sons, Malon and Chilion. Malon means puny or sickly. And Chilion means pining or crybaby. Droopy-eyed would be another word. Now, when the Hebrews would name children... They would often name their kids after a firm conviction that they had of God. Like Elimelech, his parents thought, this guy will be named, my God is king, because we believe that the Lord is sovereign. Or the Hebrews would name their children after a circumstance at the birth. Remember Jacob and Esau? Esau was born first. He was all red and hairy when he came out, so they called him hairy. That's what Esau means. Jacob came from the womb holding on to his brother Esau's heel, so they called the next son heel catcher, or Jacob. It's been fun being in the sixth, seventh month of pregnancy trying to pick out names for children. It's a tough job. 
And you wonder, well, you know, what should we name? You know, there's so many names. And you buy these books on how to name your children. There's 50,000 billion names in there. And the name that you end up with usually is the name that everyone names their kids. You know, the most popular name of the year. So we think, hey, you know, what are we going to name our kid? How about Brunhilda? That'd be a good name. It'd be different. Sound German? Brunhilda Heitzig. Yeah. My wife goes, forget it. Now, I've discovered something, and that is every parent has this morbid fear that he's going to have an ugly kid. I've talked to parents about this. Hey, just so it's healthy and it's, you know, okay when it comes out. I mean, you don't want your son looking like a Klingon or something when it comes out. Now, picture Elimelech and Naomi. They can't wait. They're having their children. And they probably thought, boy, I just hope this kid comes out looking all right. The first one is born. And they look at each other and they look at the child and they go, oh no, it happened. What are we going to name it? Well, let's name it Sickle. Malon, that's what it means. Sickly, puny. How would you like to live with that kind of a heritage? Go to school. Hi, I'm Sickle. They have another one. They name him Droopy-Eyed or Crybaby. Pining. These were their names. They had to grow up with this stuff. Now, evidently, they were probably sick children when they were born. They died at an early age. We'll get to that in just a little bit. Elimelech, though, his name means my God is king. This is my point. He never lived up to his name. He contradicted what his name meant. He said, my God is king. Yet he left the land of promise because of a temporary situation. There was famine in the land. Bethlehem, as you see in these verses, is a word that comes from two words. House, Beth, and Lechem, bread. House of bread. It was one of the most fertile places in Israel. It was the breadbasket of the Middle East. The grapes and the grain grew just in a beautiful fashion outside of Bethlehem. It was the most fertile part of Israel, and yet there's a famine now in the land. And so Elimelech and Naomi decide to split the land of promise that God has given to the Jewish people and go over to Moab, which is the land of their enemies. It was a land that God cursed in the Scripture. Because of a temporary situation, a famine, he went home and he said, Honey, the cupboards are bare. Man, we can't handle this. Let's go. No, my point is this. The other families in Bethlehem stuck it out. At least some of them did. They made it through the famine. They faced it. They tightened their belts a little tighter. Famine there was a judgment of God as it was in the book of Judges and in Leviticus. But seeking a life of ease, he left the covenant land and he went over to Moab. If God really was his king, he would have stuck it out. My God is king, but heck, man, there's a famine going on. I'm going to go to where it's easy. I'm going to go over to Moab. And so it says that he sojourned in the country of Moab, verse 1, he and his wife and his two sons. You know, often when it comes to difficult times, what's our immediate response? Let's get out of it. Let's go to a new place. Let's move here. Let's move there because it'll be better. Grass is always greener over there. Grass is always greener in Moab. 
Here's a classic example of a person who had a name but did not live up to his name. I think that happens today. There are many people who have the name Christian about them, but their actions deny that they follow Christ. They look like it on the outside. They carry the Bible. They come to church, but their lives are constantly denying the fact that Jesus is their Lord. What if you were to bring a fancy car to church or somebody you knew had a beautiful car, you know, expensive, bright, shiny, red body parked out in the parking lot, but there was no engine in it. Here you got this beautiful, bright red Mercedes. Hey, look at my car, man. Hey, well, let's check out the hood. Let's see what it looks like. Oh, well, don't worry about that. But isn't it a boss-looking car? It's beautiful, isn't it? Well, you've got this beautiful car, but how are you going to get around? Are you going to push it wherever you go? Push your car to church, get out, like Fred Flintstone, carry your Bible inside? You've got a car without a motor. Many people have the names without the power to push them. Elimelech had the name, My God is King, but he split for a temporary situation and went to the land of Moab. Oh, Moab was a beautiful place. Don't get me wrong. It was fertile, but it was under the curse of God. God cursed Moab. It was an enemy to Israel. Moab hassled Israel all of her days. The way Moab started was a relationship of incest between Lot and his daughter. They got him drunk, seduced him into a cave at night after the fall of Sodom and Gomorrah, and the son's name was Moab. God cursed the land, became an enemy to Israel. In fact, Psalm 108, there's an interesting kind of rather humorous phrase. God says, Moab is my wash pot, which could be in modern vernacular, Moab is a garbage can. Here's a man who left the house of bread the covenant land of God for a garbage can. Does that sound familiar? Jesus told a story about a son who received an inheritance and asked for the inheritance early, went off into a far country and squandered his inheritance and was eating with the pigs. He's called the prodigal son. Here we have a prodigal family out away from the protection of God. Oh, it's a fertile land. But they did it for the ease, for the temporary situation. It's kind of scary to trust the Lord. There are situations that you and I will get into, and it's going to be tough. It's hard to just trust the Lord. We'd rather do something immediate, make an immediate decision to get out of it and not face it. And you know, he would have been better off if he would have stayed there. Don't bow to pressure situation. It's tough, but don't do it. You can be pressured into making a decision of the moment that you'll regret later on. And car salesmen know how to work on this to get you into a pressure situation well you need a car right right well here's a good deal don't you know yeah and it's only today and you can have this car well it doesn't have doors or tires oh but it's it'll still it's great you need something and you came here to buy a car it's a 67 uh car and i'll sell it to you for 50 dollars down 50 dollars a day for 50 years good deal huh yeah yeah okay sign the check and afterwards you go that was dumb i was pressured into it the trials of life sometimes give us pressure and we make an immediate decision. And you're going to see this family regrets it later on. Let's look at the results. The results was misfortune. It says in verse 3, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left and her two sons. Now they took wives of the woman of Moab. The name of one was Orpha, which is translated neck or could be translated stiff neck. And the name of the other was Ruth. 
which was companionship or friendship. And they dwelt there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion also died, so puny and sickly died. And the women survived her two sons and her husband. Now, in these three verses, there's condensed a lot of heartache. Okay, Three short verses, but there's years of heartache represented in these verses. They left Bethlehem, went to Moab, they settled down. They got a nice four-bedroom tent. Two camel garage. Better jobs, better pay. It was a life of ease. They thought, this is great. The jobs are much better here. The land is more fertile here. Why didn't we do this a long time ago? Oh, those poor people back in Bethlehem still trusting God. Ah, oh, this is the place to be. This is heaven on earth. And then one day, Naomi got a phone call from the emergency room at Moab General. Naomi, your husband Elimelech just died. It was a shock to her. She loved her husband. She followed her husband. She was ready to go anywhere with her husband, even though he led her away from the land of promise. But she had two sons who could comfort her, who could carry on the family name, two daughters-in-law. They had the funeral ceremony, and she was recovering. And then her two sons died. The three people that meant the most to her in her life died. She was now left lonely, bitter, alone in the country of her enemies. Out of the covenant promises of God. With two daughters-in-laws who were Moabitesses. More than that, there were no males in the family. The family line was ended. To a Jew, that was a curse and a disgrace not to be able to have children to raise up seed after you. And so here we have a picture of Naomi, whose name meant pleasant, who became very bitter. In fact, we read later on, we'll see tonight. And she comes back to Bethlehem, she says, don't call me pleasant, call me bitter, for God has dealt very bitterly with me. She's now in verse 5, without her husband and without her children. This should be a lesson to all of us husbands for God has given us the responsibility to lead our wives and our children into the paths of God, no matter how tough it gets. To not always seek the easy way out, but to lead them in the paths of God. There's been a couple people in the church that I have admired greatly who've gone away. God bless them with better jobs. And while they were away and they looked for different fellowships in the areas, they didn't find anything, and they were suffering spiritually. They were blessing, being blessed financially. But they were suffering, suffering spiritually, and they've decided to come back because they thought that the spiritual priorities were more important, that they have their family in a church that teaches the Scripture, and they just felt more at home with the family. And they left the state, they left the, the place where they were, and they came back trusting that God would provide for them, putting God first. I admire that kind of stability. That kind of priorities. These are the things that Elimelech and Naomi neglected. The point of these verses is this. That the worst that God has to give is better than the best that the world has to offer. You see, Elimelech would have been better off in Bethlehem, even under the famine, than in the devil's land of Moab with a full belly. 
in the long run. For we're going to see that the situation turns for them in Israel. That the worst that God has to offer is better than the best that the world has to offer. This was a time of judgment. In Leviticus, God said, if you follow my commands, if you love me, I will send rain, I will send increase in fruit. If you turn away from my commandments, I will send famine. And you guys will be lacking. It was a judgment of God. When God wants to teach us a lesson, running away from it does no good because God catches up. You can leave God's people, but you can never leave God. And when God wants to teach you a lesson, guess what? He's going to do it. It might take long time. You might postpone it a little bit longer, but it's going to come because God loves you and wants to teach you that lesson. So if you're going through a testing period and God is showing you lessons, get it over with. Do it now. When I was a kid and my dad used to come after me with a belt, I would try to run from him. And you know what? It seemed like it hurt a lot more because I was prolonging it for such a long time. If I just said, okay, let's go for it, get it over with, I want to learn the lesson, it would have been better. He ran away from God's people, but he couldn't really run away from the Lord. There's an old saying. It says, the dice of the gods are loaded. They used to say that in the New Testament. The dice of the gods are loaded. Some of the Romans would say that in New Testament times. In other words, from a Christian perspective, you cannot fight against God and win. You cannot outmaneuver God. When God is dealing in your life, God will deal in your life. God loves us. God will pursue us. He will send the hound of heaven after us because he loves us and wants to turn us around. And we're going to see this beautiful change here in just a minute. But you know what? If we run away from God, like these people, Naomi and Elimelech, when we run away from God, God oftentimes will let you run and let you fall down and let you get scraped up a little bit. And when we're lying in the road, scraped up with bruises on our knees, we go, oh God, I want to come back. And God knows that you're now ready. You'll now listen. He deals with these people, teaches them the lesson, and they're going to come back. Now up to this point, the story so far is pretty depressing. We see a failure. We see a man who made mistakes and who failed and who left God. And if the story would have ended here, it would have been a drag. If the story would have ended here, this portion, these few verses, would have just ended up in a chapter in the book of Judges. But we're going to see how that God overrules. There's a bumper sticker we have in the bookstore, God rules. A new slogan should be God overrules. Because sometimes we make stupid mistakes and God can turn them around when we'll wake up. And let's see how we did that. There's a rumor going on. Verse 6. She arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab, for she heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in giving them bread. Okay, let's look at this lady one more time, Naomi. Pleasant. Her name was Pleasant. And yet she turns out very bitter as we're going to read in these verses. Well, let's go on. Uh, verse, look at verse 13, toward the end. No, my daughters, for it grieves me very much for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Look at verse 19. Now the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. It happened when they come to Bethlehem that all the city was excited because of them. And the woman said, 
This is Naomi. It's pleasant. She's come back and she said, don't call me Naomi or pleasant. Call me bitter Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Here is a woman who's turning away from God with her family, leaving Bethlehem, results in bitterness. Why is she bitter? I think she's bitter because she failed to see the purposes of God behind her suffering. She lost her two sons, she lost her husband, but God was doing it to bring them back to the land of Bethlehem. I would venture to say that if some of you are very bitter today, if you're bitter, angry people, I would bet that somewhere along the line you've had a lot of hard knocks in this life and you haven't seen a purpose behind it. Either you've been an unbeliever in your suffering or you become a Christian and you haven't allowed God to work out that perfect work in the suffering and it makes you very bitter instead of better. She now comes back. She's bitter. She's in Moab. She lost her kids, lost her husband. But she hears a rumor. God's back in town. He's visited Bethlehem. He's blessed Bethlehem. The curse is over. The judgment is over. God is blessing his people now with bread. It comes to her ears and it's like excitement to her. She goes, all right, I can return now. I can go back. I've strayed away from God, but now I want to go back home. I never should have left. And she's so excited, she just hears a rumor is all. No one gave her a morning newspaper. It wasn't documented. She just heard the rumor. She packed up and she was ready to go. Now it says in verse uh, 7, Therefore she went out from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her. And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. Being out of God's will, she hears the good news. That she can return back to the land. God has blessed the land one more time. Now she comes back empty. Doesn't have her family anymore. But what good news to a child of God who has left the perfect will of God. Some of you are here today. And I don't know, maybe some of you have come because you've been away for a long time. But the Lord's been dealing with your heart and here you are today. You've been out of God's will. You've been running from God. You've been thinking you can outsmart God. But things have turned against you. And now you're here, you're ready to call out on the name of the Lord again. You're ready to come back. That's what Naomi was going through. She heard the rumor, now she's ready to come back to Bethlehem. Now verse 6 and 7 are a beautiful illustration of repentance. Perfect illustration of repentance. She did an about face. She turned around. She turned her back on Moab. She turned her back on all the mistakes. She changed the direction that her husband led her in originally. And she's going back to Bethlehem. That's what true repentance is. It means to change direction. It would have done her no good to sit there and cry and get all upset and go, this is a bummer, I never should have left. That's penance, not repentance. Repentance is where you do something about it. You just don't sit there and get all bummed out at your situation. You say, I'm going back like the prodigal son did. She turns and she goes back now to the land of Judah. There's a beautiful little story that I once heard. There's a guy who's traveling around a little country road. Goes up to an old, beat-up shack, gas station. A man comes out. He goes, yes, Sonny, can I help you? The man in the car says, yeah, I'm trying to find Andersonville. It's supposed to be around here somewhere, uh, and, and that's where I'm going. How far is it to Andersonville? He says, Sonny, the way you're going, it's a fur piece down the road. What, what do you mean? How far? I said, Suppose the direction you're going, it'll be about another 20,000 miles, 30,000 miles. He says, 
what are you talking about? Well, the direction you're going, that's how far it'll be. But, you know, if you just turn your car around at this intersection, it's about two and a half miles back the other way. All you've got to do is turn around. None of us are far from coming back to the Lord if we've strayed from Him. It's just a matter of turning around. It's a matter of giving up. I give up. I want to come back. I'm sick of this stuff. I'm sick of going away from the Lord. I'm ready. I once talked to a lifeguard at the beach, and he said, you know, sometimes it's so hard to rescue people who are out in the water because they're just thrashing and striving to get in themselves. Sometimes I have to hit them in the head or let them kind of drown a little bit till they pass out. And once they give up, I can drag them in. It's a lot easier. So that's kind of interesting. You have to give up to get saved. It's the way it is. We have to give up and quit fighting against the Lord. And we finally say, I give up. This is a drag. And God can rescue us and bring us in. Not only was there a rumor, but there was some excitement about this lady that caused one named Ruth to come along with her. Let's look at her excitement. Verse 8. Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go, return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as he has dealt with the, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant you that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. And she kissed them and left, they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, surely we'll re, we will return with your people. But Naomi said, turn back my daughters. Why will you go with me? Are there still sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Turn back my daughters. Go your own way. I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband tonight and also bear sons, are you going to wait around till they're grown? Would you restrain yourselves from having husbands? No, my daughters, for it grieves me very much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpha kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung or stuck like glue to her. And she said, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods return after your sister-in-law. Now, Naomi says, look, count the cost. You guys need husbands. You stay home. I'm going back to Bethlehem. God has visited and I'm heading back. These two daughters say, no, we're going to go with you. Now, what's interesting is Bethlehem didn't have anything for them. There was not good news that God visited Bethlehem. They were already in the fertile valleys of Moab. It was great where they were. The God of Israel meant nothing to them. They were enemies of Israel. But I suppose it was because of the enthusiasm of Naomi to get back that they were to follow her. They said, what the heck, we've got nothing to lose. I don't know much about Israel or about your God, but let's go for it. Now, Orpha, this stiff-necked girl, although she said, yes, I want to go, finally she kissed her mother goodbye and she went the other way. Ruth, however decided to go with her, or Ruth clung to her. I think it was because of the response that Naomi had that caused these two girls to at least initially want to go back with them because they were enemies of Israel. She heard a rumor and she was off. She was ready to go. She packed. If you want to be an effective witness, you have to have some degree of enthusiasm. You really do. You can be the best debater, the best theological mind, but if it's not real and enthusiastic in your life, it's really not there. I learned this at a very young Christian age. I was working at a hospital. I was among a bunch of um, atheist humanists, and I was trying to make every argument I could on why they were wrong. And I studied, and I tried to just give them every argument. 
and none of it worked. I remember going home one evening kind of bummed out. Pulled in my driveway, parked my car. I mentioned this story to you once before. Got a knock on my door. This kid that lived across in the apartments came over to me and goes, now, this might seem a little bit weird, but uh, you were driving up the driveway. You kind of glowed. I said, I what? Well, you just had this look about you, a kind of glow. I went in the mirror and looked, checked my mug out to see if I was glowing. But he said, I know this is a, 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 th- a different kind of a strange knock on the door and thing to ask, but what's going on with you? You came in, you, I see you at the hospital every day, and I saw you come home today, and you just were so excited, so happy. And I got to share the Lord with him. He says, I knew it was something about God. I knew it had to be something about God in your life. And he accepted the Lord that day. Tried to debate, it didn't work. The enthusiasm worked. Now, I am not saying, okay, that Christianity is not intellectual. It is intellectual. It is practical. And I'm not telling you that you should go out and put a fake smile on or practice glowing in the dark. But I'm saying that if you've had an encounter with God, there should be some evidence there that's going to show when you live. It's going to be there. If you've had an encounter with God, your life will change somehow. An example, we've all, most of us have seen E.T. Remember that little kid when he found out about E.T.? He went and told his brother and he was so excited. I saw this out there. Da, da, da. Now, he didn't say, no, my brother, I'd like to submit to you 18 reasons why I believe in the existence of extraterrestrial beings. He said, you wouldn't believe what I've got in my closet. It was excitement there. Peter was hanging out fishing one day. Andrew ran up to him breathlessly saying, we have found the one who is the Messiah. It was the tone of his voice and the look in his eyes that sent Peter's nets falling to the ground following Andrew. It was that enthusiasm, I believe, that sent these two people back. Now, Orpha leaves the pages of Scripture. We never see her again. Ruth, however, we see her even recorded in the first book of the New Testament, the book of Matthew. She became an ancestress to Jesus Christ. Okay, this decision that is made in these verses is one of the most important decisions that was ever made in human history. It was a decisive moment. Let's say you were cruising along the road back then. You're on your camel. Or you're on your donkey. And you turn the corner and you see these three women over here talking. They're crying and carrying on. And you think, oh, you know, it's not important. Three women crying, carrying on. Not a big deal. Yet, that decision was so important. That decision would determine if Jesus Christ was going to be born in Bethlehem. And if that right decision wasn't made, you better tell the wise men, don't bother coming because he's not going to be born there. That's how critical God was making this decision. Naomi, her two daughters-in-law, Orpha leaves. Ruth becomes the ancestress to David and to Jesus Christ. The point of this whole thing is this. Here is a failure, a story of depression, leaving the covenant promises of God, but God overruling, making something good out of it. Even out of dumb mistakes, God overruling and letting this person become the ancestress of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to sum this up by giving you five little lessons that I have found in this story. First lesson. When you are absolutely, completely free, with no restraints, you're under bondage. It will lead you into bondage. You will be bound by your own lusts and your own desires when you just go out and do your own thing. 
That's lesson number one. Lesson number two, a name is just that, a name. It doesn't mean anything. You can call yourself any Christian name you want to, but it means absolutely nothing unless your life is one who is trusting God. You have a name like Elimelech, but it doesn't mean anything. Third lesson, you can run from God's people, but you can't run from God. You can say, I'm going to get out of fellowship. I'm going to be alone. I'm going to lock myself in this house. Nobody loves me anymore. And you can withdraw from fellowship, but you'll never withdraw from God, and God will love you enough to chase you down because he loves you to turn you around. Number four, if you run, if you escape, God might let you get scraped up a little bit along the way. And you'll be crying out for band-aids one day. And he'll be right around the corner. But you must return. Not just lie there, but come back to him. And finally, the most beautiful lesson of all, is that God can override dumb things that we do. God is so merciful and so full of grace. When we do stupid things, God can override them and turn them around. He overrules. Now, don't get me wrong. That's not a license to sin. All right, I'm going to go out and do something stupid and watch God turn it around. No, 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 no. My point is this. If you have done something dumb, if you've fallen away from God, if you've run away like a prodigal son or family, God can turn it around, but you must come back. You must repent and turn back even like these ladies did. And finally, I think you will agree with Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz. There's no place like home. Time to come back. Father, how we thank you that your love overrides even dumb decisions that we make, things that we do. Oh, God, help us to realize no matter what is going around and on in our life, that even the worst of situations is better than being in the enemy's territory. And Father, if there are those who have strayed away, oh God, bring them back. May they decide and desire to turn around today and come back into your loving arms. For we ask in Jesus' name.